From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you, and happy Easter Monday to each and every one of you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Welcome to EWTN's Open Line. The newly resurrected Father John Trujillo is waiting in the wings, ready to go. If you'd like to talk to Father John, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of North America at 1-205-271-2985. You can always uh, send us an email, openline at ewtn.com. Or you can text your question, text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you are watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, just type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Monday, the aforementioned Father John Fragilio. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Bona Pasqua. Yeah, there you go. So, how were the uh, how were the uh, Easter festivities there at the Mount? Uh, well, nobody was here. <laughs> <laughs> we all we all went to our respective dioceses. I was in Harrisburg, and all the other guys went to their dioceses for a Chrism Mass and for the Triduum. And mm-hmm. so uh, there was nobody left. It was like a vacant tomb. <laughs> <laughs> how appropriate, right? How appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Again, if you'd like to talk to Father John, the number is 833-288-EWTN. Um, so, um, you, uh, I'm assuming, did you uh, participate in uh, all aspects of the Triduum in the Diocese of Harrisburg? Well, I was at the Chrism Mass, and then uh, I went to New Jersey, and I was with Father Brigenti mm-hmm. in his parish in Flemington, because especially since this is his last one before he goes to... Josephine in Columbus mm-hmm. as the new vice rector. So this was his last Swan song. Easter. Yeah, his big hurrah. <laughs> how uh, how many people did they have entered the church there? Oh well, they had three people were baptized, Ooh, and one wonderful. lady was uh, brought to full communion, which was pretty good, especially since in the d- days of the COVID, you couldn't bring anybody. You yeah, couldn't yeah, yeah. bring anybody in. Yeah, that is rough. That is rough. Well, if you've got a question for Father John, give us a call at 833-288-3986. Travis has sent us an email, and he would like Ooh. to know, why do Catholics have to suffer in purgatory for sins already forgiven? <laughs> uh, well, uh, purgatory, is the, the name from the Latin purgatus means to be cleansed, to purge. Uh, so it's not like the punishment uh, that takes place in hell. It's a place... A state in which a person is cleansed of all attachment uh, to sin, especially venial sin. So 
although the person's forgiven, that allows them the possibility of heaven. The people themselves in purgatory want and need to be there. So it's not like this is uh, a delay or you, you've been put in the timeout room in the corner somewhere. Um, it's like, you know, you go to someone's house and you want to freshen up. Uh, you go to a hospital to visit somebody and they say, well, you need to disinfect yourself before you go in there because we can't have any germs here. Uh, and so all attachment, and that's why uh, purgatory gets rid of the temporal punishment due to sin. So we make that distinction between the two aspects. There's eternal punishment, which is hell, and then there's the temporal punishment, which takes place in purgatory. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. You know, Father John, when when we talk about um, anything having to do with the last days or when we talk about, uh, you know, the sacrament of reconciliation or, or penance, a lot of people who aren't 100% fully catechized in these matters Oftentimes, you sense that they're really approaching this, especially like uh, the general judgment. They're approaching it from an aspect of they don't want to come right out and ask you, but they're essentially wanting you you to tell them whether or not they're going to be embarrassed in front of the whole world when they come to this <laughs> to this situation. And it's kind of a little bit of what we're talking about here with Marianne. She says, during the Mass, we say we are sorry for our sins, so why do we have to go to confession on top of that? <laughs> Well, when we uh, confess our sins at Mass, it's not the sacrament of, of confession. It's not the sacrament of penance. What it is is a corporate acknowledgement that we are sinners and we're in need of forgiveness. But the sacrament itself takes place privately and individually. And that's when a person's sins are absolved by the priest. And the priest needs to hear the person uh, enunciate or at least communicate to him what mortal sins were, were performed since the last valid confession. And then the priest gives them a, a penance to, to fulfill, and, he, and then he imposes uh, absolution upon them. At the Mass, we're just saying that, yes, as members of the mystical body, we are not perfect uh, here on earth, and therefore we acknowledge the fact that we sin individually, we also sin uh, corporately uh, through many ways, but it's not the sacrament. And um, it was the Irish monks who especially devised this wonderful uh, method of going privately in the ancient ancient church. We're going way back before the, the time, I mean, uh, during the time of the Roman persecutions. It was a public thing where you just didn't say you were sorry. You said your sins out loud. Everybody uh, heard them. But back in the old days, everybody knew what you did anyway, because if you were in the catacombs and the, the Romans came and they arrested you when you denounced your faith. Everybody knew about it. Uh, once Christianity was legalized in 313 with the Edict of Milan, uh, it was much more uh, private. And uh, like I said, the Irish monks, I think, were brilliant in devising this way of going to confession. So it's now completely confidential. So at various times during the Mass, Father, you all priests are up there whispering things that everybody can't hear. <laughs> And mm -hmm. James would like to know, at communion time, why do they mix water with wine? It, uh, the mixing of the water and the wine is a symbolic gesture uh, that the priest, is, it's not optional, he must do. And he says, so the mystery of this water and wine, we come to share in the divinity of Christ, to humble himself, to share in our humanity. 
And this idea that, you know, divinity is, is awesome, it's infinite, humanity is finite, and yet uh, in the incarnation, Jesus is true God and true man. He's fully divine, he's fully human. That's the mystery of the incarnation. He's not, his divinity doesn't overwhelm, but to uh, sort of symbolize that, you know, their one drop of water is placed in the chalice uh, of the wine that will be consecrated uh, into the precious blood of Jesus. 833-288, excuse me, 288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Carol wants to know if angels share in the divine nature. Uh, they don't share in the divine nature. They have an angelic nature, and that means it's limited. It's It's finite. Although they're unlike us, uh, their knowledge was infused. So whatever they know, they knew from the very moment that they were created. Uh, you and I, we learn things uh, it's by a process called abstraction, as St. Thomas Aquinas explained. So uh, we can learn and more and more as our life progresses, whereas an angel knows everything it will ever know from the moment it's created. They have a, an intellect, they have a will, but their intellect and will is an angelic intellect and will. It's not the divine intellect and will that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has. And because they're completely, they have no bodies, they're they're completely spiritual. So they are spirits, but they're not, they don't have a divine nature. That, that, that would mean that they know everything and that their will is absolute, and that is not correct. Just getting started on an Monday edition of EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio live from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, is your host today. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Ray in the great state of Colorado, Dennis in North Carolina, Trish is in Florida, Dan is in Missouri, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-EWTN. 3986. And if you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1 205 271 2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985. And you can always send us an email. Send us an email to openline at EWTN.com and put something like Monday or Father John in the subject line. We'll get it to the appropriate location. It's a Monday edition of EWTN's Open Line with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, one of the beauties of uh, Holy Mother Church and being a part of the Catholic Church is all of the, the beautiful and inspirational, optional devotions that are available to us that have come down through the centuries and through the millennia now in, in the Catholic Church. 
And one of those is the devotion to the holy face of Jesus. And we've got a, a little um, item at EWTN's religious catalog to help you do that, and that's the holy face of Jesus Shroud of Turin plaque. And this Shroud of Turin wall plaque features a beautiful reproduction of the holy face of Jesus as it appears on the photo negative of the Shroud of Turin. It's printed on a thick wood plaque with a glossy finish and beveled black edges. It's 5 by 7 inches and has a drilled keyhole in the back for hanging and optional wooden peg feet for freestanding as an easel. This is exclusively made for EWTN right here in the United States. It's available now at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com, where they're offering free standard shipping of online orders, $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental United States only. Use the code FREE at checkout. The Holy Face of Jesus Shroud of Turin Plaque, available at EWTNRC.com. To the phones we go. First up is Ray, a first-time caller in the great state of Colorado, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Ray, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much. Excited to ask my question. Go right ahead. Thank you. Um, so uh, regarding the scapular, I know there are many different kinds, metals, um, green, brown, um, I, I've been wearing mine around my neck and over my clothes, um, and I just want to know the correct way to wear it because I have been told by others that it's okay to be under your clothes or pinned inside, and, and I, I read that it's not supposed to be pinned or inside, that you're supposed to wear it out, that, you know, when we wear it, we wear it um, proudly and to show, you know, our commitments to our mother, um, and I'm I'm kind of getting conflicting. <laughs> yeah, I I could uh, I understand because people ask that question quite often. Um, you are not obligated to wear it outside your clothing. Most Catholics wear it underneath, and not because they're embarrassed. It's just more practical because it can get in the way, get caught on doorknobs, on handles, on uh, steering wheels. I mean, you know, it it can be uh, precarious and. The reason why we wear the scapular uh, is because of the promise that Our Lady made, especially if you're wearing the brown scapular. But as you mentioned, there's all these other different scapulars. There's the green scapular uh, for uh, people who are sick. There's the black scapular, which is uh, to Our Lady of, of the Seven Sorrows. The brown scapular, which is the most well-known, is um, because Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And that was promoted also uh, by Our Lady of Fatima to, to the children. Um, you can wear the scapular inside. You can wear it outside. There's also the longer scapular. People who are third order Carmelites uh, typically wear that. It's like the traditional uh, scapular people see today, but it's much larger. And that's even uh, an abbreviation from the one that the actual Carmelite nuns and Carmelite monks wear. Uh, the scapula is the Latin word for the, the bone that's on your shoulder there, and it it falls flat on the front and the back, and it goes all the way down to the ankles. That's the traditional scapular uh, that the religious wear, and the one that uh, you were mentioning that most people have uh, is a much, much more abbreviated uh, version of that. And so, yes, you can wear it on the outside, you can wear it on the inside. There's also uh, a privilege that's extended to people. You can wear the scapular metal. Um, my dad particularly was glad about that because uh, 
being a um, Sicilian himself, uh, the scapular kind of um, aggravated his hairy chest. So uh, one of the popes allowed the substitution of the scapular metal. But as long as you get uh, enrolled in the brown scapular, you never have to get uh, a replacement uh, blessed again because the blessing is upon you uh, and not on the scapular. And if it breaks or is uh, um damage anyway you just burn it or or bury it but uh yeah you don't have to be embarrassed about wearing it but you don't wear it to be seen either it's it's for your spiritual edification does that help ray it does help um if i could ask just a a follow-up question um so you're saying that that or i'm going to reiterate you're you're saying that all of the scapulars um metal or or cloth give you the same blessings um that the, the, the same promises that were promised it doesn't it doesn't take away at all that that is correct now the the metal all right has i mean for it to be uh, the same privileges it has to have the image of our our, our lady of, of mount carmel on there um and uh, i believe the sacred heart might be on the back but uh you can um look that up at the ewtn online library um I don't think you're ever going to find anything that's um, – it's not like the old days where you had some counterfeit, like miraculous metals that were going around. Uh, I haven't seen those in a long, long time, and I haven't seen any of those whatsoever in the scapular. So, yes, you can wear the scapular metal or the traditional scapular. It could be completely cloth. It could be encased in plastic, which really can irritate uh, the skin, but I know some people prefer it. It's also on a chain with plastic. So uh, the composition is not as crucial as the picture, the image that's on there. God bless you, Ray. Thanks so much for the phone call, and happy Easter to you. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. You know, we had a wonderful, devout family that uh, our family was close to, and when the oldest daughter in the family was going away to college, they went into her bedroom to move her bed because they were going to turn that room into something other than a bedroom. And when the mattress was taken up from the box springs, uh, her dad saw, you know, crucifixes and brown scapulars and green scapulars <laughs> and prayer cards on top of the box spring between the box spring and the mattress. And he looked at his wife and he said, my goodness, really now? This is a little ridiculous. And she told him, well, you better not look under your side of our bed then. (laughs) (laughs) Next up is Dennis in the great state of North Carolina. He's living on Sirius, listening rather, on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dennis, you're on with Father John. Okay, thank you, Father Trujillo and Jack. Um, I had a question about the catechism. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have two we have two catechisms. One of them is uh, copyrighted by the Vatican Library in I think 1994, um, and it's in English, of course. Um, and then the other one is entitled the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults, and I think it came out in 2006. That's when it was copyrighted by the uh, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. I assume they say the same thing in a different way. Uh, my question is, if I'm if I'm researching, you know, like some Catholic doctrine, uh, is there one or the other that I should uh, use as my priority source? Uh, yes, um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church that is. Um that's the universal one that's um, 
copyrighted through the Vatican, is the universal uh, catechism. And the most current one, I believe, is copyrighted 2003 because there were some tweaks that were made. And I think um, even Pope uh, Francis has uh, made some uh, tweaks as well. So you might even get an even more uh, recent one than that. The 92 edition is the one, the first one that came out uh, under the uh, authority of Pope John Paul the Great, St. John Paul. Um, the American version the, from the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, um, that doesn't supplant or replace. It was meant as a national supplement uh, to the, the catechism. Um, but the catechism itself, the universal catechism, I remember when it came out, there were some uh, crackpot theologians that were telling priests, oh, it's too complicated for the people. Uh, that's just for bishops and theologians. Well, that's, about, that's a lot of hooey. Uh, the catechism was written for everyone. The footnotes uh, are like 75% or more are from sacred scripture and then from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and from the council documents from Vatican II going all the way back to Nicaea. So it's not something that you have to have a, uh, a doctorate in theology to be able to comprehend. But the bishops, uh, the, the American version, uh, it's just something that is, works as a supplement, as an auxiliary aid, just like when you have catechism books for the children in CCD or in Catholic grade school, uh, it's meant to, you know, to help the teacher convey the, the certain truths of the faith, particular uh, in a way that's understandable to that culture and that uh, milieu, as they say. So, yeah, if you want to know the bottom line, if it's not in the universal catechism, it's it's not the official teaching of the church. But uh, check the, the, the copyright date because, um, like I said, Pope Francis just recently um, made, made a few tweaks uh, in it himself, particularly on the, the death penalty and capital punishment. So um, I think even the 2003 one is, is, is out of date in that regard. It's not that all of it's been changed. There's just a, a few little lines there that, that have been, um, you know, reworded to be a little bit more accurate. Thanks, Dennis. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Trish is in Oakland, Florida. She is a first-time caller. Trish, are we going to have to wash your mouth out with soap? <laughs> I sure hope not. <laughs> What's your question today? Oh, happy Easter. Blessed Easter to both of you. Um, I My question is this. You know, being raised in a devout Catholic home, we never... We were strictly told, you know, you know, you never take the Lord's name in vain by saying God, like, oh my God. Uh, but I just had recently had a um, conversation with some friends and even um, a Carmelite, and uh, you know, I told them that I've been hearing lately that from uh, other Christians, you know, not non-Catholics, that in their home they're not allowed to say even, oh my gosh, oh my goodness. So then we got down to, okay, so now. What do you say? to say, oh, my. I said, my intention—this is what I've learned, is it's the intention in the heart. I mean, I've always been someone who takes it seriously and teaches our family that. So that's my question. Where do you draw the line as to taking God's name in vain? Yes, um, that, that's a, a good question. <laughs> the, the, the precise definition of blasphemy, to use God's name in vain— is to use the sacred name of Jesus or uh, Christ or God 
uh, to curse or swear or to uh, express some anger or discontent. Um, using substitute words uh, is is not uh, a bad thing. The only thing you have to be cautious of is some words like, oh my gosh, if you say it quickly enough or from a distance, people might actually misinterpret that you said, oh my God. So you want to be careful. If you are going to change it, it's not enough that you just don't do it yourself. You don't want to scandalize anyone. But I use Italian words, and that, that gets me out of a lot of trouble. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Right back to the phones we go. Dan has been waiting patiently in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Dan, you're on with Father John. Hey, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I was calling today. um, Over the uh, last week, Easter week, I came across, uh, I was listening to a Mass, but they were talking about the Paschal Mystery, and Father started talking about um, the origination of the name Paschal Mysteries and where it came from. And I thought he said that it was possibly had something to do with Passover. So I guess my question is, Father, can you can you clear up some of the, the where the name originated from? Okay, uh, the, the, and I'm glad you asked that question because uh, sometimes people hear it, but some priests and deacons don't necessarily explain it uh, too often or too well. Uh, the phrase Paschal Mystery, singular, or the plural Paschal Mysteries, uh, both refer to the same thing. It's the, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's the fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis where uh, after Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Paradise, uh, God made a promise that the the human race would be redeemed and saved. And so Jesus's uh, passion, death, and resurrection constitute what we call the Paschal Mystery. And just like, um, you know, in in Italian to say Happy Easter, we say Bona Pasqua. Uh, It comes from the same root word, Pascha, uh, which is the word for Easter. Now, Easter is certainly tied into the Passover because uh, Jesus um, celebrated the Last Supper uh, in the upper room uh, during the Passover, and he transformed what was then the Seder meal into what we now have as the Mass or the breaking of the bread, the Eucharistic liturgy, and so forth. Um, But under the Christian dispensation or uh, the New Testament era, uh, the word Pascha refers to that Easter event, and the Paschal Mysteries, or mystery, singular, uh, is the culmination, particularly uh, during the Triduum, which is Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and then, of course, the Easter Vigil, and then we continue it, because right now we're in the octave of Easter, so we have eight full days of saying the the, the Gloria and, you know, the, the sequence, and then Easter season even continues after that, uh, all the way to the Ascension, uh, and even further into Pentecost, which is 50 days after Easter. Does that help, Dan? 
Yeah, that that Seder that Seder connection is what is what I was looking for. I was trying to figure out how how the where the Jewish connection was in it. You know, I'm fascinated by um, how many things there are between Catholics and Jewish the the faith, both of them. Oh yeah, and Jesus was a, a faithful Jew uh, as the Messiah, and certainly as you look at what took place at the Last Supper, unleavened bread, which is part of the Seder meal. Um, you have the the cups the cups of wine, but it's been transformed by Jesus into what we now as Christ, Catholic Christians call the Holy Mass. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Next up is Emily in Meridian, Idaho, listening to our phenomenal affiliate in Idaho, Salt and Light Radio. Emily, Happy Easter! Happy Easter! What's your question today? So. So my question is, I'm just, I'm doing Lenten reflections and stuff. I was, I keep coming up on the, you know, be the the peacekeeper and that kind of stuff. And I was just having trouble kind of recognizing defending the truth and being that peacemaker because (laughs) I'm involved in like pro-life ministries and that kind of stuff. And like, I keep coming across all these things, like child-free by choice, and then EWTN just talked about this new campaign about StopHavingKids.com, which is clearly, you know, the father of lies, fingerprints, all over that kind of stuff, encouraging people to not have children and, you know, not get married and all this stuff. And I'm just, I just wanted to hear what a, you know, priest would say about, you know, how do we defend the truth kind of courageously and boldly, but be that peacekeeper and not you know, not try to tell people how to live, but you know what I mean? Yeah. No, that's a very, very good uh, question and good insight because um, a person of peace, a peacemaker, uh, is not someone who appeases. Appeasement, as you know, we know so well from history, uh, Neville Chamberlain tried to appease Adolf Hitler and it didn't prevent World War II. In fact, it probably encouraged Hitler all, all the more. Uh, so appeasement is when you placate someone who's doing something wrong or evil uh, in the guise of seeking peace. But appeasement is, is not peace. Peace is the tranquility of order. It's not just the absence of war. St. Thomas Aquinas tells us this in his Summa Theologica. And the tranquility of order is when uh, things act appropriately and have their proper relationship. So, for instance, God is our creator. We're, we're the creatures. We have this proper a dynamic going on where we uh, obey his will, we serve him, we worship him. Uh, we don't try to bring him down to our level. We try to rise up uh, to the level he's challenging and calling us to. So you could be a peacemaker without compromising truth and justice, but it's but the, what helps you is speaking the truth in charity. Uh, that's the big difference is because some people can be very true and very just, but they're not very Christian. And the choice is not between the two, but as Pope Benedict Emeritus said so well and so often, Catholicism is not a religion of either or, it's religion of both and. So you and I must and have to be a peacemaker, but also a person of justice and truth. And when we temper that with charity, we don't dilute the truth, but it's how we say it, when we say it. As I was telling the seminarians before the, uh, the Easter vacation, I said, you know, if somebody owes you money, um, but in justice, they need to pay you back, but you don't shake them down at their dad's funeral, at the funeral parlor. That's not the most prudent place or way to do it. 
and yet you don't want to have empower someone or you be codependent and just say to them, well, don't worry about it. Um, there's the white way of doing it. That's where the, the cardinal virtues uh, help uh, as well. Does that help, Emily? Yeah, that helps. Awesome. Thanks so much for the phone call. You know, Father John, uh, Father Joe McDonald of Happy Memory once told me that the best way to sound like you have the other person's best interest at heart is to have the other person's best interest at heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Christian in Dallas, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Christian, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, Father. How are you? Fine. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. He is risen, indeed he is risen. Uh, my question is, uh, what do we mean when we talk about justification, when we say faith formed through charity or faith formed through love? To give some context, I recently watched a debate between Jimmy Akin and a Lutheran theologian, and it seemed like the Catholic position, of course, is faith formed through charity and faith formed through love, and Lutherans take the inverse, that it's love formed through faith, or charity formed through faith. And uh, I, to be honest, I didn't quite understand the difference between both and, and why it's a significant difference. Uh, and, of course, it is a significant difference. So, Oh, yeah, and, and that's been the, the bone of contention since uh, the, the beginning of the Reformation. Um, oftentimes people think that the Catholic position is that we put works uh, before faith, and that's not what the Church teaches. The Church teaches that grace is the power, and this goes back to St. Augustine himself and reaffirmed by the Council of Trent, and it's in the Catechism of the, of the Catholic Church. Um, it's, it's grace that motivates us both to have faith and to put faith into practice in our good works. And justification is not a juridic act, with, as um, Martin Luther um, explained it in his theology. It was sort of like, you know, God legally, you know, says you're, you're, you're innocent. Uh, it's just like when the governor pardons a, a prisoner, the guy's still guilty as all heck, but, uh, you know, the, the governor just lets you out of jail. Justification, on the other hand, is transformative. What happens is not only is the legality removed that we, you know, we uh, committed sin, we, we violated God's laws and commandments, but we are justified. We are made righteous in the eyes of God because of God's grace, because with sanctifying grace, that allows us the ability to go to heaven. That makes us a child of God. When we commit a mortal sin, we push out sanctifying grace, and we need to be justified. And it's not a, uh, merely a juridic act. It's uh, a metaphysical, uh, spiritual uh, uh, endeavor as well. And it's the personal application of what Jesus did on Good Friday to you and me individually. That's why when we go to confession, the priest makes the sign of the cross and says, I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, it's more than just a, a governor pardoning uh, a guilty a convict. It's actually a, a restoration uh, from the wound, the wound of, of sin, and we're made whole again in the eyes of God. Does that help, Christian? Oh, yeah. No, that's great. I think, you know, kind of what I took away from from all of this, and I think this kind of adds to it, is the role that free will plays 
And, uh, you know, and I've heard other people on the show describe it as cooperation with grace. Yes. To be honest, you know, this is very helpful because my uh, in-laws uh, came from a Lutheran tradition. They're now non-denominational, but, you know, when we get into our debates about <laughs> the Catholic view of justification and, and salvation versus, you know, their view, you know, that... Uh, I, I just want to make sure I'm articulating it properly and I'm not uh, espousing any heresies. No, no, you're not. You're you're on the right track because, you know, um, this whole idea that, uh, you know, we we are justified by the, what Jesus did, but we must accept and cooperate with that. You know, Pelagius was a heretic that Augustine battled with who said you could earn your way to heaven and the Church condemned that, but also this idea that, because uh, St. James says it's not by faith alone, uh, that's very explicit in his epistle. It's faith and works which are motivated by divine grace, and grace is something that God offers, but we must accept and cooperate with it. Next up is Catherine. She is a first-time caller in Houston, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Happy Easter, Catherine. You're on with Father John. Oh, happy Easter. Um I got to see the movie Father Sue last week with my sister-in-law, and I have been pondering it and unpacking it ever since. And a Catholic reviewer had mentioned that he thought that this would be a movie that all young men discerning vocations or young men who are in the <laughs> seminary ought to see because mm-hmm. of you know, all the thematic elements of perseverance and suffering and dignity and hope and miracles. But, and it was lovely to see the Catholic faith on film and handled in such a beautiful way. But all of a sudden, I'm like, I wonder if I was a young man, if it wouldn't be a bit like having St. Mother Teresa put in front of me. You know, she had that encounter with God, with Christ himself, moved her on his path. So, someone who works with seminary, would this movie be too soon, or would it be encouraging? And did you have a chance to see it? Thank you. Uh, I have not yet had the opportunity to see it. Um, I've heard people on both ends of the spectrum. I always caution people because no one movie uh, can ever replace divine revelation. So sacred scripture and sacred tradition, uh, the magisterial teachings of the church, uh, the fathers of the church, um, all the great spiritual classics— they're at our full disposal. So uh, as great a, as a movie, even like you know, uh, the, the, the Passion was, um, we don't want to put it at the same level, the high level of, of what we get directly from God through divine revelation. So I say, de gustibus non disputandum est, which is an ancient saying that St. Thomas uses quite frequently. It's a matter of taste. It's a matter of opinion. Some people will like the movie. Some people will not. Uh, there's some scenes in there which I, I have already heard that some people found offensive, and probably rightly so. Other people will say, well, you know, it makes it more real. Um, you know, not everybody likes Song of Bernadette or the, the, the actress who played Bernadette. But uh, the movie overall I thought was good. But I would never want someone to feel obligated or to, or to put a man-made movie or book at the same level as what we have inspired by God. So sacred scripture, sacred tradition always have to come first, and they are what are necessary for salvation. These other things, these man-made um, creations, whether it's a film or a book or even a song or opera, whatever you want to uh, put out there, 
they can be helpful, but they, they're not going to be the same level. And some people are going to like it, some people are not. Um, I watched the movie, I Confess, it was an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Some people, some priests, they watched it and they didn't like it. I said, that's fine, you, you don't have to. Uh, private Revelation, you don't even have to accept uh, Fatima or Lourdes. I do, personally. But if a, a Catholic comes up to me and says, Father, I don't believe it, I have to say that's fine because that's the church position. Uh, public revelation is mandatory and salvific and necessary. Private revelation is not, and these movies and books aren't even part of private revelation. So, you know, uh, a caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, but just use some, um, you know, proper um, introspection when you are watching these things. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out Catholic Connection tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Teresa talks with Dr. Marlon De La Torre, uh, the Director of Evangelization and Missionary Discipleship, and uh, the topic will be Divine Mercy Sunday, which is coming up this Sunday. So that'll be a timely conversation. Teresa Tamio's Catholic Connection tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Uh, we head to the great state of Michigan, where that show originates, and Dawn is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dawn, you're on with Father John. Hi, Father John. I have Hello. Um, a question. Or, hi. Um can you please explain Divine Mercy Sunday and the requirements, and can our non-Catholic friends participate? Okay, good. Uh, Divine Mercy Sunday is the Sunday after Easter. It used to be called Low Sunday. It's now been um, officially, you can call it, um, or the Sunday after Easter. It's called Divine Mercy Sunday. Uh, the, our Divine Lord appeared to St. Faustina, a Polish nun, and asked her to promote devotion to divine mercy. Now, there was a lot of controversy over uh, what is required for uh, divine mercy and the special spiritual privileges. The Vatican made it very clear that the pl a plenary indulgence is available uh, for divine mercy Sunday, and it's the same as any other plenary indulgence. It's not uh, a more powerful plenary indulgence, there is no such thing. There are plenary indulgences, which is the full remission of temporal punishment due to sin, and you have partial ones. Um, divine mercy, as well as any other um, act, like praying the rosary before the Blessed Sacrament, uh, going to the cemetery, visiting the, um, the, the graves on, on All Souls Day, visiting the four major basilicas in Rome, those are just one of met, a couple of many possibilities for a plenary indulgence or a priest's first mass or his 25th or uh, 50th anniversary there's a, a, a plenary indulgence available so what the plenary indulgence requires is that a person goes to confession and the vatican again amended this so it's 21 days before or 21 days after divine mercy sunday so you do not have to go to confession on Divine Mercy Sunday itself. You can if it's available, but if you don't, if you made it uh, beforehand, that's fine, okay? Uh, you must receive communion the day of Divine Mercy. You must also say some prayers for the intention of the Holy Father. Our Father, glory be the Apostles' Creed. And uh, the praying those prayers and being in the, in the state of grace uh, then affords you the possibility of the plenary indulgence. I know some people, I, I, when I was uh, helping out at a parish uh, and when I was pastor, 
people say, Father, we have to get the confession. I said, you have to get the confession if you're in the state of mortal sin, yes. But if you've gone to confession 21 days before or after, you do not have to demand that the priest, because it's just impossible for one parish priest to hear all the confessions of his parish on one Sunday afternoon. Uh, if you've got 10, 12, 20, or 30 priests, that, that's probably uh, doable. But uh, the church ex expanded uh, that uh, quite well. And again, it's the uh, full uh, remission of temporal punishment if you have no attachment to venial sin. If you do have any attachment, it defaults uh, to a, a, a partial indulgence. And praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet is also uh, requested on the Divine Mercy Sunday. So as long as you do those three things, Divine Mercy Chaplet, you go to receive Holy Communion, to say the prayers for the Holy Father on the day itself, and then confession, uh, either before or after, uh, it suffices. Thanks so much. We appreciate that call. Uh, next up is Mike in the great state of South Carolina, listening on Catholic Radio in South Carolina. Mike, happy Easter. Welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Happy Easter. How's everybody doing? Thanks. Very well. Great, great. Um, so I heard you talk about justification before, and it's something that my brother is Catholic. I'm actually um, I'm not. Um, so I left the Catholic Church in 2005. Um, so got born again and actually ended up leaving the Catholic Church. But we were talking about justification. Um, and I think it's interesting because the Catholic Church, does it still hold, and I believe it's the Council of Trent, that those that believe that you are saved by faith alone, apart from any work, um, that they are actually anathema? Because I don't believe the Catholic Church has changed their position on that, according to you, like official church doctrine. Okay, well, the, the anathema, um, the uh, reprobation, uh, was specifically at the Council of Trent uh, for those uh, reformers who were Catholic, like Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk um, prior to him establishing uh, the Lutheran Church. Um, if someone, through no fault of their own, you know, doesn't realize, you know, uh, what the, the Church is teaching, that anathema uh, doesn't apply to them in that sense. They're not excommunicated because they're not in in, in full communion to begin with. Um, but this idea of you know, faith and works together, um, what Trent did was just reiterate what St. James said in his epistle. It's not a battle between either or, like I mentioned before, what Pope Benedict often says, it's both, and, it's both faith and works which are motivated by divine grace. And if somebody says to the contrary, whether they're, they're Catholic or otherwise, uh, the anathema in the, especially in the old, uh, like, Council of Trent and uh, Council of Nicaea and the Council of Florence and all those other uh, councils, uh, the anathemas, the excommunications were meant medicinally to sort of help convince people to come back and, and uh, embrace the totality of the truth. At the Second Vatican Council, there are no anathemas, not because there are no more uh, mis uh, errors in, in, in people's judgment is that we, we realize that, you know, this is a, a better way of handling it. What about this whole business of sacred scripture, speaking of faith alone? It's not in sacred scripture, of faith alone. It's St. James says it's not by faith alone. So the sola fide that Martin Luther said, um, you know, that's part of his, his Lutheran theology, that phrase is not in sacred scripture. You, and you can do this now with computers, you know, do a word search, put quotations around, you know, faith alone, and you will see St. James saying it is not by faith alone. But 
that doesn't mean that we discount faith. It's Again, it's not a choice between faith or works. It's faith and works, because works flow from the faith, but the faith also has to be uh, lived out, and both faith and works have to be empowered by divine grace. And quickly, we'll head to Paul in Albuquerque, New Mexico, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Paul, what's your question today for Father John? Uh, good afternoon. Um, actually, my question is a gene- genealogical question. It has to do with uh, baptismal records going back to the late 1800s. Uh, my great-grandfather was um, born in, in South Carolina, and as was one of his brothers, and they both had witnesses on their baptismal records, who, people who were vestrymen for the Church. And I'm wondering, okay, first of all, why, why the vestrymen? And the other question I had was, he had a brother who was an adult with him at the same time, who was unmarried. Would there be a reason why he could not have been a witness for the baptism um, of uh, my great-grandfather. Okay, uh, well, in, in the Catholic Church, and I believe the same is for the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, one can have one godparent, or you can have two, a godmother and a godfather. You can't have two of the same gender, okay? You either have one a sponsor for baptism, or you have two, a godmother and a godfather. And to be a godparent, you must be uh, a practicing Catholic, you must be 16 years of age, um, you must be already baptized and confirmed. Um, someone can be what we call a Christian witness, uh, which I don't think it, 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 it was uh, feasible back in the 1800s uh, since the um, uh, Second Vatican Council and the 1983 Code of Canon Law. A Christian witness is someone who's baptized but not Catholic. Um, they, they're they listed as a Christian witness, but they're not listed as the godparent or the formal sponsor, because one must be a Catholic in good standing for that. Um, but if in the 1800s, the word witness probably meant the same thing as a godparent. Um, as long as somebody was duly uh, qualified, then that's chosen by the parents. And, you know, um, sometimes brothers and sisters weren't chosen, not because they were bad, it was just, you know, this was a custom that somebody else got it. Now, the worst thing is just to give someone that job as godparent because it's their turn. That's not how it works. You want someone who's going to be a practicing Catholic uh, to be your, a sponsor. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes. Until then, God bless. <laughs>